I mean, I have some sympathy to that in terms of, yeah, in moral intuitions that people have that I deeply lack. The idea of dessert is just, you know, I've never found any of that compelling. Um, but I think, you know, imagine someone else on the other side of the table to you who says, wow, I can't believe this person just like all he cares about is just thinking about good outcomes. He just doesn't respect persons like this is terrifying. You know, it would seem like you would both want each other to kind of meet halfway and then you could both get kind of the best of both worlds. Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. A few quick updates before we get to today's guest. Firstly, the promised Ask Me Anything episode where I take listener questions. That's still coming. I'm going to release that next week. I just got a whole load of really interesting questions in the 11th hour, and I kind of want to take my time to give a good response to all of those. Next update is I've just launched a YouTube channel for the podcast. So far, what we have is all of the podcast episodes, um, just audio but with an image. But what's quite cool about having them on YouTube is you can hit CC or closed captions and you can get a pretty accurate transcription of them as you listen. So you can read as you're listening to them. So what I did is I re-listened to episode 2 with Zephyr Teachow on about 1.5 times to 2 times speed, but with the closed captions on. And that's a different way to listen to and absorb the podcast for those of you who are interested. Finally, I've got a few new pieces of software and I've worked out how to do a few things technically which should mean that the quality of the podcasts we're giving you in terms of audio and listening experience um, is increased to hopefully pretty much a professional level. And I may even go back and, for some of the episodes that were, where the recording was apparently a bit quiet or there was a little bit of background noise, I might try and redo those and put out better quality audio recordings uh, going forward. So... Those are the updates. Today's guest I am super excited by, and I was super excited to have been able to get him on the podcast, is Professor Will McCaskill. Will is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Oxford University, but is best known as the co-founder and president of the Centre for Effective Altruism. So, the Centre for Effective Altruism is what it sounds like, through organisations like Giving What we can. It encourages people to commit at least 10% of their income to effective charities. So far, they've raised $1.5 billion in pledged lifetime donations, and they run over 100 effective altruism local groups. Will also co-founded 80,000 Hours, a non-profit that provides research and advice on how you can best make a difference through your career. Will's academic research is in moral philosophy, particularly as it applies to these questions, and he also focuses on moral uncertainty, which is the title of his upcoming book and the subject of our conversation today. As one final note, I will say that even by the standards of this podcast, this is a fairly challenging conversation, and it's challenging in two ways. It's a, it's a difficult and complex subject matter, although a really, really interesting one. And I also realised, re-listening to this interview, that I, I interviewed Will in a fairly challenging way. To use a sports metaphor, I was throwing a lot of fastballs and curveballs at him. But to Will's great credit, I think he hit back pretty much all of them. And indeed, there's one point where I lose myself and I ask a question which shows that I haven't understood the last thing that Will just said to me. And I included that anyway for accountability purposes. But even though it's challenging, I really appreciated Will taking the time and giving thoughtful, honest replies to really the most challenging questions I could throw at him. And I think the result is really, really valuable. And if it makes your head spin a little bit, then 
you can kind of learn to love that feeling, and that's part of what doing philosophy is about. So, that's a little bit of a long introduction. I'll pause it there. It is my absolute pleasure to present to all of you Professor Will McCaskill. Okay, so I am joined today by Oxford University Professor Will McCaskill. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Um, I've been following your work for a while, and I think this interview is just going to follow up on some questions I had listening to you on other podcasts. Before we get into any of that, um, do you just want to introduce yourself? What do you do, and how do you think about your role these days? Sure. So, yeah, my name's Will McCaskill, and I'm an associate professor of philosophy at Oxford University. I'm one of the co-founders of the Global Priorities Institute, which does research to try and answer the question, uh, with any given unit of resources, how can we do as much good as possible? Uh, This is part of the wider effective altruism movement, which I helped to spark, um, including setting up nonprofits, 80,000 Hours, and the Center for Effective Altruism, which is... And the general theme is trying to work out with our time, with our money, how can we improve the world by as much as possible? Given all the problems the world faces, the, world's fa- the world faces, what should we focus on first? Cool, cool. So today I actually wanted to talk to you about your, it's your latest book is on moral uncertainty, right? Your upcoming uh, one? That's right, yeah. So it's still a work in progress, but hopefully we'll be out next week. Great. So... Let's let's cash out moral uncertainty because there's two levels on which you could have uncertainty in morality. There's uncertainty about what's going to happen in any given action, and then there's uncertainty about which moral theory is right. Could you explain that a little bit better than I did? Sure. So the first type of uncertainty, uncertainty about what's going to happen, is um, very familiar to researchers, but also the world at large. We've thought about and dealt with and analyzed this sort of um, probability um, all the way back to kind of Blaise Pascal um, and even a little bit earlier uh, to, in order to work out, you know, especially focused on poker games and other sorts of betting to work out, you know, how can you get the largest payoff over the long term? And the general idea is just very simple. When you're unsure about what's going to happen, you should choose the action that will, on average, get you the best outcome, average across all the things that you could um, imagine happening. And so here's a kind of concrete example of that. Imagine you're you know, driving around a blind corner and um, you're deciding you know, how fast should you go around that blind corner. Uh, if you go very fast, then you'll reach your destination be- faster. Um, that'll be good. Um, and but there's some small chance, maybe it's only one percent chance that there are children kind of playing on the road. Um, and if you hit the child, then that would be extremely bad. You know, you seriously hurt or injured a, um, an innocent person. That would be a serious kind of model wrong. So how should you decide what you ought to do? You've got this potential benefit of getting to your destination faster. This potential cost of uh, um, seriously about how should you weigh them up well the standard analysis expected utility theory says look at the probabilities of each and the severity of the wrongdoing or the right doing in each case so we might say okay 99% chance of getting to your destination faster let's say that's just a kind of plus one um, in terms of how good it is well a 1% chance of um, seriously injuring a child Let's say that's minus 10,000. It's much, much, much worse to seriously injure a child than it is good to get to your destination faster. So the kind of morally correct thing of a right decision would be to not speed down the blind corner, to take it slow. Um, Because even though you're probably not going to hit anyone, the small chance of a very bad outcome outweighs the larger probability of a slightly better outcome. 
if you kind of speed that if you speed down that blind corner. Uh, so that's the case of uncertain empirical uncertainty or uncertainty about what's going to happen. Uh, contrast that with moral uncertainty, uncertainty about your kind of fundamental moral values. Um, that's very different, but maybe we can speak it in the same way. So suppose you're deciding whether to eat um, meat or a vegetarian meal. And suppose you think, well, it's, I've considered some of the arguments. I think it's very likely that animals have just no moral status, perfectly permissible to eat meat. In fact, it would be like a little bit nicer of a meal. Let's say that's plus one um, in terms of goodness. But there are these vegetarians and they seem to you know, have arguments. I'm not completely confident. There's some significant chance that um, I'm, you know, my best guess is wrong. And in fact, it is morally wrong to eat meat. In fact, it's just as long as if I was eating human flesh, perhaps. Um, how long would that be? Well, it would be very long. Let's say that's minus 10,000, in which case it would seem like applying the same sort of reasoning that is utterly standard when it comes to uncertainty about matters of fact would mean that in this case, we ought not to eat the meat, um, even if you're very confident that doing so is permissible, because the small probability of doing something very badly wrong would um, outweigh the much larger probability of doing something that's probably right. So, um, and this is a you know, new application, it seems, of this kind of expected utility reasoning. So just to make really explicit the expected utility part, this is essentially the way I always used to think about it, and this form of reasoning is really familiar to me because I used to play a whole load of poker. I paid, um, mm -hmm. I paid a lot of my student costs playing poker in the poker boom, in fact. Nice. And I think anyone who plays poker, whether they know it or not, are using, is using this sort of model in their heads, at mm -hmm. least if they're doing it right. Um, so it's essentially saying if you played a thousand, ten thousand hands or iterations of this thing, what, what, would overall be best over a very large or even an infinite time horizon. So you could use mm -hmm. an example to explicate it from gambling. I mean, let's just make it a really simple one. You're playing a roulette wheel and you've got good odds. You're betting red and black, so essentially 50%. Every time you lose, mm -hmm. you lose a dollar. Every time you win, you gain $5, say. Most people would intuitively mm -hmm. want to play that game. But then the feature of expected value that gets you into trouble or not gets you into trouble but is really interesting is that the small probability of a very bad outcome so if you keep with that same game but every time it rolls double zero which is a one in 30 odds you lose a thousand dollars then you'd immediately stop playing the game even mm -hmm. if that's a fairly low outcome and a similar thing happens in moral choices the both of the the things you just gave are cases mm -hmm. of a very small probability event overwhelming your reasoning for the rest of it, right? That's exactly right. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a very small probability. Mm. You know, one in a hundred happens a hundred, one out of every hundred times. Right. Um, that's still, you know, a reasonable probability. And there's all sorts of um, decisions we make that we do so on the basis of much smaller probabilities. I wear my seatbelt, even though it's probably one in a hundred thousand that I'll actually get into a car crash. Mm. Um, so we can be really okay about very small probabilities, but the key insight of expected utility theory is that you need to balance the probabilities of different outcomes with um, the magnitude of kind of what's at stake um, and balance those two. Which has always been like super intuitive for me for day-to-day -day reasoning, i.e. the do you cross look both ways when you cross the street? But it's always been really intuitive for me, or at least has recently, with political reasoning. Um, before we get to the moral stuff, let me give you one example of the political mm -hmm. stuff where expected utility theory has kind of changed my mind on a political action, mm -hmm. um, which would be foreign policy. So mm -hmm. as far as I can see, there's two big existential risks, which even if they're small probability, they're so mm -hmm. bad that we'd want to avoid. There's... Um, climate change, which will probably be familiar to most people on the left. Mm -hmm. But then there's the risk of a nuclear exchange or something mm -hmm. like that, which mm -hmm. tends to lead you in a more conservative direction. And when I started, I've always been very taken by, say, the Noam Chomsky approach to American foreign policy in the last 60 years, which there's a lot of very bad stuff that we'd want to call out there. But 
if you take the view that even if a nuclear exchange is only a few percent probability, it's a bad enough outcome that any decision just has to be assessed in light of, is this raising Mm -hmm. or lowering that probability? And then a lot of the actions of the American government, you know, in this sort of American imperial era, start to make a hell of a lot more sense if you're asking the question, is this raising or lowering the... the, um, the probability of a nuclear exchange. Now, that's not fully exculpatory. You can argue that even with that view in mind, they're still making the wrong calls. But it really does start to make sense of a lot of American interventions that wouldn't otherwise make sense. And it does seem to be the internal logic that people like Eisenhower, who was a big card player, were using to assess these actions. Uh, Yeah, so I'd want to distinguish you know, the concept of expected utility theory, and in particular, the application of it to these, you know, global catastrophic risks, where I completely agree with you that, um, you know, nuclear war, extreme climate change, global pandemics, potentially other very bad technologies, you know, sorry, potentially other technologies with some risks of very bad events. Um, they, you know, they carry risks that, again, yeah, low percentage points are very, very bad outcomes. You know, most people on the earth dying, destruction of civilization for, um, you know, removing all of future potential. This is potentially the worst thing we face, even if it's a small probability of that happening. Um, so I completely agree with that. Um, uh, and indeed, I think that kind of reduction of these global catastrophic or even existential risks might be one of the most important moral issues of our time. Uh, as for whether that justifies um, U.S. kind of foreign policy, uh, maybe I'm less clear on that. Um, I'm not, you know, do I think that the the invasion of Iraq increased or decreased existential risk? Probably um, increased, right? Yeah, my guess, my guess would be increased. Um, there's also, you know, other things historically, uh, certainly with the, when nuclear weapons were first developed, there was the proposed Barak plan um, that would have put fissile material in the hands of a kind of international body um, so that uh, there wouldn't have been a kind of global arms race between Russia and the US. And at least plausibly, that would have been kind of very good, um, but that didn't happen. And yeah. um, no, I mean, that's like I... evidence that people weren't thinking enough about nuclear war. I mean, like I said, I don't know if we want to go down this particular rabbit hole. Like I said, I don't think it's exculpatory in all cases. Certainly with the invasion of Iraq, there's no intelligible link there, given Mm. that there weren't the weapons of mass destruction. I mean, I I do sympathise with the people in the 50s and the 60s when these weapons first came about, because yes, there was some serious proposals to not go down that road, but then two facts, through all of human history, people have pursued superior weapons technology and used it to their advantage when they do. That just is the trend. And then even if people like the US, the UK were coming to that with good faith, the guy on the other side of the negotiating table was Stalin. And mm-hmm. that, that, that is a practical impediment to that utopian vision. And I'm sympathetic to people I mean, who had to navigate that. Yeah, I mean, and that was why the talks and these plans kind of broke down. There just wasn't sufficient level of trust between um, Russia and the US. Yeah. Um, there are some kind of unintuitive uh, thoughts as well. I mean, it's not clear that having zero nuclear weapons in the world would be safer than having, say, 100 nuclear weapons compared to the 14,000 we have right now. The reason being that, um, well, even if there weapons, it can build them relatively quickly. Um, and in fact, if everyone had zero, then one country might worry that another country could build it faster and therefore um, try and get ahead and build it as quickly as possible and in fact, launch first. Um, uh, but in general, um, I would definitely like to see the n- number of nuclear weapons plummet dramatically. You could probably, that there might be some sort of like stable equilibrium where like everyone had, like two people had five of them or something like that which would be a hell of a, a long way from our world. It would be very far from our world. But yeah, potentially that's much more stable. Okay, so moving on then. Um, there's, 
there's that sort of application which whether or not you agree, you know, and we could probably spend the rest of the thing talking about like the game theoretic stuff to do with foreign policy, nuclear weapons. Um, but then that to me is always quite intuitive and it's it's not whether or not it's correct that we're thinking in that way. It's just what the applications are, how you add up the probabilities. But then what you're doing in some of your work and in your latest book, is you're applying that to the idea of is eating meat right or wrong? Is um, consequentialism, deontology, religion right Mm -hmm. or wrong? That Mm -hmm. seems to me much less intuitive. I had one sort of random question for you, which is Mm -hmm. what do you think is the strongest argument against bringing an expected utility theory to whether different moral theories are true or not? Um... It's a great question. So I think there's a few. So one that I know you're particularly interested in is this issue of very low probability theories um, uh, that perhaps potentially posit very large amounts of value, things things are kind of hugely at stake. Um, A second, and that's part of kind of a broader category of just, it might be hard to have low credence in views that are just even if they're like low enough credence and views that are quite crazy and therefore kind of break the whole decision-making apparatus. Um, so in other work, I've talked about theories that think that there's very large amounts of incomparability between different options. It's actually very hard to um, prevent them from kind of infecting the whole of your decision theory. And just even if you've got low credence in that view, um, having the conclusion that almost all options have a kind of no defined expected utility. Um, Another kind of class of problems is the problem of comparisons of value between different theories. So if utilitarianism says it's morally right to kill one person to save five and non-consequentialism says it's very wrong to do so, for which theory is there more at stake? You need to answer that question if you want to apply expected utility theory, but um, it's unclear kind of what the answer is. So I think the best argument against would be a succession of um, like technical difficulties in terms of actually trying to apply expected utility theory in this context. So maybe it's you know therefore misapplication, and then depending on whether you're the glass half full or glass half empty kind of person, you might think, okay, it's just doomed. There's just too many of these issues. Um, I, on the other hand, am more more sanguine and think that. Think of these as bugs to be solved rather than um, fundamental problems. So you could imagine... I I was thinking of this because it does seem like it does make sense. And the best argument I came up with against sort of using expected value and moral uncertainty is you could just say something like a lot of these other things like... um, specifically religious claims come to mind, but a lot of the more extreme deontological claims are just, we are not giving these really any intellectual credence at all. You can Mm -hmm. imagine someone like the historical Bentham saying something like this. They're just Mm -hmm. not coherent accounts, and so we're just assigning essentially zero weight to them. Therefore, we don't need to do this calculus. But even that wouldn't get you fully out of moral uncertainty, because there's still, even within consequentialism, a huge number of different accounts and theories and approaches, and you'd still want to weight different things differently between them. You can imagine two utilitarians making different moral claims, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, of So is there any argument against... So even if you were to say we're just... All of these small probability things, we're just taking them off the table because we just don't think they're that likely. Even if you make that move, you'd still be in a world where you were doing some sort of work in moral uncertainty. Is that right? And is is there an argument against doing it at all to just say maybe there is just one approach and we're sticking with it? Um, so I think there's two ways you could try and have that. There's just one approach view. Um, one is if you're what gets called nor- a normative externalist. So on this view, what you ought to do is what's morally correct, and there's no sense in what you ought, what you ought to do being relevant to the credences you have in different views. So if utilitarianism is correct, then what you ought to do is maximize total well-being, um, even if that means, um, even if you think it's very unlikely that you ought to maximize total well-being. And now, I would agree that there 
Of course, there's a sense in which if utilitarianism is true, you ought to maximize total well-being. But there's also a sense in which what you ought to do, perhaps it's a rational ought rather than moral ought, what you ought to do is relative to um, the degrees of belief you have. And the reason for that is because um, there, ought, there should be some sort of ought that's you know, helping guide your actions. So if you come to me and you're like, well, I've got this really tricky ethical dilemma, maybe it involves some issues in population ethics, it's very hard to think about, and you say, look, I just, um, I don't know what to do. If I then say to you, well, you ought to just do the right thing, do what's correct according to whatever is the correct moral view, that is just, you know, it's not very helpful, is it? <laughs> it's not going to help you make a better decision. So that's one way in which, um, but, you know, there are people who've been critical of the whole project of taking moral uncertainty into account, like Brian Weatherson and Elizabeth Harmon, and they have this, defend this normative externalist view. Um, the other way in which you could have this view is by saying, look, moral truths, if they are true, are necessarily true. They're true in all possible worlds. They couldn't possibly have been false. So if it's true that, you tilt it, that one ought to maximize total well-being, then no matter what way the world is like, one ought to maximize total well-being. And you could say that, therefore, you ought to believe to degree one, like 100% belief in um, total in utilitarianism, in the same way as you ought to have full, completely full, 100% belief in two plus two equals four, and um, you know if p and if p then q then q. Um, these are just, um, and perhaps even it's you know accessible. This moral truth is accessible to us just from the armchair, a priori. Um, and if so, then um, if so, then you know, do the expected utility calculation, but it's going to be very boring because you've only got credence in one moral view, the correct one. Okay, so I have a question here about the 2 plus 2 equals 4, and this might be way too meta, even yeah. for this conversation. But I could imagine another layer still. There's uncertainty about what's going to happen in a given scenario. There's uncertainty about what moral theories are ultimately true. But then I can imagine like a degree of uncertainty in just our overall framework. So mm -hmm. I tend to think in a rationalist, analytic, empiricist sense, which I would argue doesn't necessarily lead you to a naive positivism in your applied. The first thing you should learn as an empiricist is really how little you understand of the world. But I'm coming from an analytic approach where, yes, if P, then Q, right? And if something follows logically and, you know, you believe in evidence and so on. And if you really get down to it and say, well, why? I sort of just go, well, because that's where I land and that seems the only mm -hmm. way of thinking about the world that makes any sort of sense. But then there are very smart people in, say, the, the continental tradition of philosophy or something that seem to be doing mm -hmm. something completely different. And what you, you can imagine, it's not necessarily moral, but ep an, an epistemic uncertainty. Mm -hmm. should, should we be assigning weights to to the idea that something like the dialectic is true? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think, so, that, you know, what we've been talking about, moral uncertainty, is just one instance of a larger set of questions around normative uncertainty. So that's epistemological uncertainty um, that you mentioned. There's also decision-theoretic uncertainty, um, which includes uncertainty about how you ought to take moral uncertainty into account, um, uh, uncertainty about expected utility theory itself. And so the question then, you know, ought you to take that into account too? Uncertainty about whether your fundamental methodology is correct? I mean, I would say yes. Um, otherwise, it just seems like horrendously partisan. Um, you know, there's these other people who are just as smart as you um, by stipulation who have come up with a kind of radically different um, conclusions and seemingly for different methodology. It's your brain is just wired in the wrong way. Um, uh, I think ultimately you should, you know, put some weight, you know, put some likelihood in them being in the correct uh, point of view. And therefore, um, but then that feels like we're just opening up a rabbit hole that we're never going to return from. I mean, do you ever have that fear that this is just even for philosophy? If you were to open up epistemic uncertainty, then we're just never getting out from that. Or are you more? I mean, that's a, that is a common thought in uh, philosophy, is that you feel like you're going into a rabbit hole you'll never get out from. 
Um, I mean, I think the question you've been hitting up against is this question of you know, peer disagreement. So given that yes. other very smart people disagree with you, well, should you take that view into account? And I think my view is the answer is yes. Um, the way you do so is quite subtle, though. So supposing, you know, you think these continentals are just completely barking up the wrong tree, the naive thing to think is, well, you ought to immediately kind of update and, you know, you know, your views ought to converge to some extent. But supposing that you also think, well, in the future, there's going to be none of these continentals because they're wrong. There's going to be just lots and lots more analytic philosophers um, thinking in the way I do. Then it seems like you've got a coherent set of beliefs. Uh, perhaps you're not rational. Perhaps you're not justified in believing that um, all these people in the future will be analytic philosophers. But it does seem like you're coherent because, you know, the vast majority of people are now on your side. And that's what you ought to believe if you're taking peer disagreement seriously. Um, and it's quite subtle that you ought to update not just on, you know, who the person you people you talk to who disagree with you, nor even all the people in the world who disagree with you, but actually just all um, people across time and even um, or people you could imagine talking with, depending on the likelihood of you talking with them. But if you do across time, you can imagine a future where a particular set of views became universally accepted that were wrong. That the entire world started thinking a particular way. Or let's say the entire world just reverted back to religious fundamentalism. You can imagine that world, but then would that mean we would want to take those views more seriously? Mm. But that's why I think we've got to think about it across possibility space as well. Um, so, um, you know, you've also got to think, um, well, yeah, in how many worlds does this happen? And then you do also, you know, have to consider the question of, are these people your peers as well? So in this case of kind of, well, religious fundamentalism has taken over, you have some explanation which you believe to be of a process that's generated these beliefs that is non-truth tracking. So in that sense, at least with respect to these beliefs, they might not genuinely be your epistemic peers. So how do you wait, like, because what I heard you saying on um, the 80,000 Hours podcast, and correct me if I'm not interpreting you right, mm -hmm. is you weight peer disagreement quite heavily against what you'd say the intuitive, or not the intuitive, but the innate plausibility of the arguments. So mm. I heard you essentially saying you're more or less sold on the arguments for some form of consequentialism, maybe not 100%, mm -hmm. but like 80, 90% sold. But then once you factor in peer disagreement and the fact that most of your peers are deontologists, of some stripe you pull yep. that number all the way back down to like 50 percent yeah uh yeah that's basically correct um but and i that just doesn't seem wrong to me or even weird to me um i definitely wish other people were much more um had show you know were more epistemically like moderate or humble too i mean in particular the arguments you know, it, the subject matter is just so difficult. I mean, it seems like ludicrously overconfident to have very high credence in a particular model view. Um, then I can also imagine methodology, like methodologies that I don't endorse, I don't find plausible, that I can totally see leading to non-consequentialism. So Frances Cam, for example, is maybe the arch non-consequentialist. She thinks that what's, what you're doing when you're doing moral philosophy is you're just it's just like kind of like linguistics you're kind of systematizing your moral intuitions and you know i don't expect the laws of grammar to be very um simple for example um it would be a very different you know working out the laws of grammar is a very different game than working out the laws of physics or the laws of mathematics and so there are some deep kind of methodological disagreements that you could have that would result in a very different normative or moral view and for that reason, if I think um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, for that reason, when I'm trying to think, well, what actually ought my credence to be across different moral views, I can't just think about my own preferred methodology. Um, that would seem a little bit partisan to the way things just happen to seem to me. Here's why weighting peer disagreement that heavily seems odd to me. And again, th there's probably a question we should cash out on how do we define a peer? Are we talking professional 
moral philosophers? Are we talking people who think about this? Are we talking all human mm-hmm. beings? Are we all talking all possible human beings? But yeah, yeah. however you draw that circle, here's where it goes wrong for me, is if you take peer disagreement seriously at all, you have to start cashing in religious games at the table. You have to start cashing in religious claims. And religious c- claims just break the expected value model with a sickening crack. As soon as you grant even a 1% possibility of there being a god and some sort of divine law, that is just going to overwhelm any other sort of more day-to-day considerations. Or, on a more basic level, as soon as you grant any possibility of there being an afterlife, then anything can be justified in light of that. If we are going to be rewarded for all time or suffer for all time because of our actions, then even if that's a really low-order event, everything else falls before that. But then my issue with the idea of, like, um sort of peer acceptance is there's got to be some percentage, again, it depends how we define peer, but of really smart people who've thought about this a lot, who really seriously endorse religious claims. I mean, I was just talking to um, Dale Martin, who's a New Testament historian, great conversation, amazingly smart guy. But then do I have to weight those claims when I make moral decisions myself? And if I have to wait them, they're going to overwhelm my moral worldview. So I think there's two issues to kind of separate. And let's just focus on one where the kind of idea of, you know, overwhelming your moral worldview, that's going to happen, I think, whatever, um, or at least it's going to risk happening, whatever your view on peer disagreement. So supposing the stakes are literally infinitely great. It's a matter of, um, you know, uh, heaven or hell. Um, and then suppose you credence that God exists, you know, you don't take any of the peer disagreement stuff. Should your credence in God existing be zero? And the answer has to be no. Um, that's too low. Now, if your credence is zero, then you can also never get evidence for changing your belief. There's no, what zero means is that there's no possible circumstance in which I would alter my belief in any way. But we can obviously think of circumstances in which you change your belief. You know, you come to believe in God, like, you know, booming voice comes from the sky, like lightning cracks down. This happened, like people keep souls going up to heaven and so on. Um, so the credence can't be as low as zero. But as soon as it's, you know, any um, real number, then once you allow the possibility of um, infinite amounts of value, it this at least so the argument goes, seems that that's just going to swamp everything. Because, you know, you think, well, should I go to church? Or, um, you know, should I start trying to convert other people to Christianity or whatever other religion? And you think, well, you know, it's a very small chance this will actually work. Let's say it's one in a million and one in a billion chance that God exists. Um, but one in a million billion times infinity is still positive infinity. And so that swamps any kind of finite concerns. Um, now, I think that argument doesn't work. Um, one reason being that um, the argument that kind of infinite amounts of value swamp just the million, well, that certain actions produce infinite amounts of value and others don't, um, doesn't kind of hold true. One reason is, you know, suppose I drink a beer. Now I've now countenanced the idea of infinite, of infinite amount of values. I, you know, maybe, the, and I drink a beer rather than going to church. One chance that drinking a beer is actually the way I get into heaven. Maybe I think it's much, much less likely than going to church. I think it's a trillion times less likely than going to church. But now that's still like a one in a trillion times, one in a billion chance of God existing. Any incredibly low probability means that you still end up with infinite expected value. So you've now got this situation where all actions, because every single action has some probability of getting you into heaven, all actions have kind of infinite amounts of expected value. So you now should just be indifferent between absolutely everything. But then it gets even worse because there's the possibility of hell as well. Um, All actions give the possibility of hell. So you've got some number times 
positive infinity plus some number times negative infinity, your overall expectation is just undefined. So I think the correct lesson from thinking about you know, religion and idea of God and positive and infinite amounts of value is not that this is an argument for some courses of action over others necessarily, but that it breaks expected utility theory. At least that's how it seems. Um, so, yeah, go on. Yes, but so, so, but that's one line you could draw to cash out my intuition that it is a bit different at the moral level than at the practical. Is if you take my example of nuclear war, there's one very, very bad outcome that we would want to avoid. And, you know, then it just becomes a practical matter of what are the odds of it, um, how do we move in the world in such a way as to avoid it, and there could be different answers there. But then if you take the idea of going to hell, it's actually multiple bad outcomes with different ways to them. So there's, like, you could go to hell for not believing in Jesus, you could go to hell for not believing in Muhammad, and the actions you would have to take to avoid those outcomes are mutually contradictory. So you could kind of just say they just cancel out. There's You, you can drink the beer or not, and if they, there's a pass, pathway from both of those to heaven or hell, then it's kind of just like, you know, the minus side and the plus side, and it maps to zero. But then the problem oh. with, you know, taking a strong approach to, like, what your peers think is the number of people who think going to church will get you into heaven and the number of smart people who think going to church will get you into heaven is much higher, I think, I would guess, than the number of people who think drinking the beer will get you into heaven. So if you take, mm-hmm. if you take the idea of you know, what everyone else thinks seriously, it, it seems to get you away from the move which I read you as making, which is that, yes, we want to take these very low things seriously, but they kind of cancel each other out in a sense. That's true if we assume that they're equally unlikely, but then if we take peer disagreement seriously, they're not equally unlikely. Uh, So the point I was making was that at least given standard expected utility theory, even if they have different probabilities of getting you to heaven, Mm. they're still infinite. They're still the same. Oh, I see. Okay. Expected, which is namely infinite. Now, you could change expected utility theory a bit because, you know, supposing I give you two options. You've died, I'm St. Peter, we're at the pearly gates, um, turns out heaven was real all along, and I give you two options. One is a guarantee of heaven, the second is a one in a million chance of heaven. Which would you prefer? Seems like pretty obviously you're going to prefer the guarantee of heaven to a one in a million chance of heaven. Hmm. Now, expected utility theory can't handle that. Um, expected utility theory says they're equally good. They both give you an infinite expectation because one in a million times infinity equals infinity. Um, and that suggests that something has gone wrong with expected utility theory once we start thinking about infinite amounts of value. So then is that is the bottom line then just infinity breaks the equation? Um, at least, it, yeah, it does for the time being, I think. It does until we've figured out how to really think about dealing with infinite amounts of value. And I think you just get into an yeah, a huge number of different of difficult issues. Would that change if we conceptualized the sort of value of religious claims as very, very large but still finite? So that could change, that's right. So you could think, okay, it's not like yeah, we're feeling yeah, skeptical of um infinite amounts of value, don't know how to handle them. Yeah, suppose it's just some vast amount of value. A Google to the power of a Google um, right. value. Um, uh, and then, again, I think even without um, peer disagreement, you have this difficult issue, which is, again, it seems hard for your credence that God exists to get low enough to really warrant just ignoring it entirely. You know, supposing we think of heaven as a Google to the power of Google, do you have credence one over that in um, God existing? Well, it seems like it would be very overconfident to do so. And I think that's true basically whatever your views of peer disagreement. Um, And there I think we do hit up against, yet again, a kind of deeper problem with expected utility theory. But I think this is a problem in both the empirical case and in the 
model in the case of decision making under model uncertainty, which is that when you've got these enormously slim probabilities of vast amounts of value, you know, we really do start to bulk that this is the this is the right way to make decisions. Um, and note that that's like empirical, you know, uncertainty about whether there's a ha- whether there's a heaven is just uncertainty about a matter of fact. Um, right. It's quite different from uncertainty about you know, normative matters, I think. Well, is there a heaven in theory you could accommodate within a consequentialist worldview? Like, if this is a real place, then that's just a consequence that we have to consider. But it doesn't yeah. sound... It sounds like you you give a lot of weight with peer review to deontologists who say there are deantic constraints to how we move yeah. morally. And you weight that in at something like 30 or 40%. But it seems like yeah. you're not weighting the idea of... You're weighting the idea of heaven and hell and God or whatever in, but at some fraction of a percent. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely something I'd like to think about more. I think, like, you know, people of a kind of scientific rationalist mindset, I think, can be too quick to dismiss... Um, certain arguments for conclusions that they like have been like trained to think are com- definitely wrong, um, like the existence of God. You know, perhaps in the wake of such, um, you know, so like so many other views, perhaps you should have a you know reasonably high credence. I mean, my best view is you know my best guess on how to understand the situation. Again, noting that it's very hard, is just that you know religious views aren't. Well, two things. One is that they're not necessarily independent. So, you know, supposing, um, you know, supposing that there's 100,000 people and they all believe in, in this stadium and you discover that they all believe that, um, uh, you know, they all believe that the kind of next card I'm going to pull out of the deck of cards is the Ace of Clubs. Um, now, should I update in favor of that? And it's like, well, you might do so. Like, if they all think this, then like maybe they know something about this pack of cards that I don't. But then if you say, well, actually, there was just this one person who believed it, and he cast like a magical spell over the entire stadium, then like the fact that it's 100,000 or a million or a billion just doesn't matter at all. There's just kind of like one initial cause. So in probability terms, these people aren't, they don't have independent judgments. And I think you could argue the same with respect to religious views. So, you know, there's just this, um, uh, you know, kind of one book, one line of evidence. Um, people's, all kind of many, many religious people aren't forming judgments on the basis of, um, or at least to the, not, to the same extent, on the basis of independent kind of assessment of evidence. Um, so therefore, they're kind of... Um, for that reason, the kind of scale of the peer disagreement might not look as high, might not actually be as high as you might think. Um, the second, um, I'm going to mention kind of a couple more. Second then is just, again, whether you regard people as peers, um, if people also have various um, empirical beliefs that seem very implausible, um, which, at least for biblical literalism, is often going to be the case. There again, you might be warranted in, like, on those grounds, kind of not regarding other people's peers, or at least within that kind of constrained area. And then the third is when you actually do think about disagreement, not just across all people in the world, but into the future again. If you think, well, just, I expect even, you know, assuming the future is a rational place, I expect most people to be non-religious. Then at least that's a coherent set of beliefs. Um, so, you know, I do think the issue is actually very hard. I think more, I think harder than most people give it credit for. But I think there's, it's a, yeah, it's at least plausible to think that um, your credence ought to be very low, even while taking in, you know, taking peer disagreement very seriously. So as a final topic to end on, what's the sort of cash value of this moral uncertainty way of thinking? Because when it, it comes to religious claims, it seems like we're sort of on the same page with you just having thought about it more than me, that we grant there to be some possibility, and it would be weird mm-hmm. not to, but we're not really 
going to let that possibility govern our moral decision-making, at least most of the time. Whereas Mm -hmm. that's not the case for all views, right? Like, you, I think, would want to say that there are times when you would take a moral point of view. Well, let me just ask that as a question. What are the times that you would make a, take a moral point of view that you would get to on the basis of moral uncertainty but you wouldn't have got to on the basis of consequentialism? Okay, terrific, yeah. I think the key, maybe there's two key um, aspects. So one is violation of side constraints. So, you know, should you kill one person to save five or... Um, you know, harm someone for the greater good and so on? Should you um, flame an innocent person in order to prevent a riot? All these classic counterexamples to consequentialism. I think under moral uncertainty, you ought to be pretty wary of violating side constraints for the greater good. I don't think it's absolute, but I think it moves you much more towards a kind of threshold deontology view. I think it's plausible that the non-consequentialist thinks it's very bad if you kill one person to save five much more thinks it's much more wrong than the utilitarian thinks it's right to kill one person to save five so that's kind of one class um the second is then kind of considering bearers of value that i might not think otherwise has value um so the natural environment for example um i think uh you know on the moral views i find most likely, you know, there's no intrinsic value to the natural environment. There might be strong um, instrumental reasons for preserving it, but nothing intrinsically valuable about biodiversity or um, preservation of natural habitat. Um, but, you know, there's are these other people who disagree with me, so I should end up placing at least some intrinsic weight on um, such things. Um, and then in terms of like the old, you know, overall view i think this is like part of it and then i think from the other side the non kind of consequentialists should think that in terms of our positive reasons our reasons to do good um well they think well you know how you spend your money your charity your career that's just kind of like up to you it's like morally permissible either way whereas the consequentialist says well it's really really important um to ensure that you're trying to use this to do as much good as possible um, and so I think that side of things um, strongly supports the consequentialist view. And then in particular, I think it supports really worrying about these, um, you know, global catastrophic risks or existential risks that we talked about, just because the amount of value lost into the future um, on those views that really value the loss of future people um, as almost, you know, as bad as deaths. Um, well, that's just hundreds of trillions of people into the future if the human race were to go extinct soon. And um, therefore, I think on the consequentialist part of the equation, ensuring that we preserve the human race into the future becomes absolutely crucial. Um, Okay, I've got one follow-up, just we're coming up on time. But my one follow-up would be, is if you take a case like, do you frame an innocent man to prevent a riot that would kill Mm -hmm. 10 people? I mean... I would argue that, that there's a sort of way out of that without moving into deontology or even moral uncertainty at all, which is just the move from act to rule utilitarianism. You just say, well, overall, you know, we want a functioning justice system and that would be what would maximise um, utility overall. And people will then try and come up with examples about, oh, but what if no one knew? And what if it didn't affect mm-hmm, the overall mm-hmm. enforcement of the rule? To which my answer would just be, sure, but that's not how real life works. Like in real mm-hmm. life, the best you're going to do is just the enforcement of a set of rules, a set of norms, a set of laws and institutions. Can you think of an example? So I think there's examples of moral rules that can be justified both deontologically and as an overall way of maximising utility. Something like a prohibition on torture would be a good example. But then I think there's moral rules that actually can only be justified deontologically. So the idea of retribution or punishment, I think, Mm -hmm. I I find it difficult to see how you get to America's prison system from utility alone. I don't think you can. Mm -hmm. So do I, by your view, if... If there's one set of rules that you can get to really from just consequences and utility, 
how far do I need to be taking seriously? Is there any examples where you would take seriously a rule that can only be justified deontologically? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, it depends exactly how you uh, flesh it out, but like I mentioned, kind of preservation of the natural environment or something. Mm. Um, uh, I do agree. I mean, I do agree that it's this very notable fact that the things that non-consequentialists tend to say have intrinsic value or intrinsic wrongness are very suspicious insofar as they are very often also conducive to generally improving well-being. And those cases where they aren't conducive to well-being, actually, they seem kind of suspect, um, like instances of, you know, uh, moral purity, like the prohibition against homosexuality that they used to be. Um, uh, but then in, in those cases, do you just not want to say, well, you know, there might be some probability that you're right, but it's not really high enough that I'm going to take it particularly seriously? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what exactly what I think about in that case. I was just I was moving away from moral uncertainty and just onto the um, object level point that mm. um, one of the things that makes me suspicious about non-consequentialism is that the things they seem to promote um, are so often also things that are just good from the perspective of you know making the world a better place. And when they um, are in terms of utilitarian, and when they are promoting rules that can't be justified non-consequentially. They seem to be, I think, never mind punishment, desert in general, good people should get good things, bad people should get bad things, seems to be justifying all sorts of horrible conditions for the quote-unquote bad people. And then on the flip side, all sorts of levels of wealth inequality that you'd never get to from consequentialism alone. And I, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how seriously we should take that view. It's a majority view, even within academia, that desert plays some role. But I don't... I don't know. I think if it's, I, I'm maybe just a bit more of a philosophic meathead here. I'm almost just of the point of view that if, if consequentialism doesn't get you there, then actually the onus is on you to say what does get you there and evidence that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have some sympathy to that in terms of, yeah, in, moral intuitions that people have that I deeply lack. The idea of desert is just, you know, I've never found any of that compelling. Um, but I think, you know, imagine someone else on the other side of the table to you who says, wow, I can't believe this person just like all he cares about is just thinking about good outcomes. He just doesn't respect persons like this is terrifying. You know, it would seem like you would both want each other to kind of meet halfway and then you could both get kind of the best of both worlds. But it sounds you know, you like could, you could avoid the most egregious wrongs. A lot of where you're coming from is a sort of like respect of persons. Like, yeah, if you're sitting in the room with someone, you'd want to be careful with how you've said it, and you wouldn't want to just say, "Well, you're a moral imbecile." You wouldn't want to put it like that, right? But but that's sort of a question of tact and manners. And then, as yes, as a matter of practicality, if we have to sit down and decide what social policy is, you might advance utility more by granting some weight to desert in order to find a compromise, but as a sort of like what is ultimately morally right. I mean, just to stick with the desert case, I've never seen anything plausible there other than just, well, I, you know, I don't like these people and I want them to suffer, or I do like these people and I want them to be rewarded, but that's that's really insufficient. Mm. I mean, you did mention that majority of people in academia think that that's plausible. I'm not sure if that's correct. I mean, I might just be biased in the people I know, but it seems like the idea of retribution as a justification for punishment, at least within philosophy, seems to be quite um, uh, a minority view. You, you might be right there, but on the positive side, the desert plays some role in allocation of resources on the positive side? Uh, again, it- I would think it's view, but really? it's definitely not like zero. I know that some people do think, yeah. I mean, um, but po- again, I might have a very biased sample. Because... I mean, I feel like in political philosophy, dessert does quite a lot of work. I mean, you're the academic. I can, I'm more than happy to be corrected on this one. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, there's the whole field of luck egalitarianism, um, which does, you know, build in um, dessert into part of the kind of very notion 
it's never clear to me whether political philosophers are trying to kind of carve normative reality as joints or not. You know, are the principles they're giving meant to be, yes, this is the fundamental moral principle, or is this meant to be more like the principle that society, like society ought to kind of live by, which is more moving into what you were calling the rule consequentialist so um, kind of justification again. We're coming up on time, but what sort of weight, if you're giving like 30-40% weight to deontology, mainly on the basis of like peer views, how would you weight dessert in at the table? Um, so... Yeah, maybe I put that like ten percent or something. Oh, okay. So like we, we want to look at it a little bit, but we're yeah. I fairly... need to think. That's right. Yeah, I need to think about um. Uh, well, you know, how much would that change, kind of concretely? You know, I still think punishment and reward are just even. You know, I have exceptionally deep disagreements with the current prison system, um, especially in the U.S. Um, but you know, I still think that punishment and reward is like a going to produce kind of better outcomes, um, at least under some formulation, because you know, because of the incentive effects and so on. Um, so I'd need to think about cases where that really makes a difference. Um, but I'd want to, you know, it would at least get like a little bit of weight. Perhaps it would always, perhaps actually, it would always be outweighed by. Um, you know, so if I think, oh, I really ought to punish the bad person, well, that's always going to be bad according to, um, you know, the views on which just mm. making someone worse off is bad. So in cases where there's no, you know, incentive or signaling effects, it's possible it would just always be outweighed by the larger proportion of my credence that thinks, um, you know, it's very wrong to harm someone merely for grounds of retribution. Yeah, that's so definitely possible. So in cases that are like drug use or sex work or stuff like that, then you're, when it's victimless crimes, as it were, there's really yeah. the, the idea so that, that these people need to be punished. That's that, yeah. So uh, someone has been caught for possessing marijuana. Hmm. There's some portion of my credence, according to which, which is very really low, according to which possessing marijuana is wrong. And it's, and, um, uh, one ought to punish um, people who've broken the law. Um, but there's like a larger portion of my credence which says it's wrong to punish innocent people. Right. Um, it's wrong to harm innocent people. Um, and, or it's like it's wrong to harm people if there's going to be no kind of good consequences from that. So if that's, and so the, it's plausible, it just always be up. So if that's on the lowest end, final, final question, on the highest end would be something like protection of the natural world in terms of some sort of deantic constraint. What, what deantic constraint would you let your consequentialism be overwhelmed by? Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, you've said, well, there are these good rules, um, like, you know, keep promises and um, don't harm other people. Hmm. Um, I think... You know, it would just be very surprising to me if the non-consequentialist and the consequentialist agreed in every case, mm. you know, even when we're going around in the real world. Like, the rules that you would come up with that are justified on consequentialist grounds, they're still going to look pretty different from, like, the non-consequentialist rules, I would expect. Can you give an um, example of a non-consequentialist rule which you would, your, your hunch would be you can't get to that through consequentialism, but you would still grant a lot of credence to? Um, I mean, okay, actually, he, here's a kind of better one. This is maybe, again, you could build it into value if you want, but like kind of obligations to your friends and to your family. Mm. At least the utilitarians is going to say like, look, it's just all the same. Whereas, um, you know, I'd want to give like at least, you know, I'd want to give some extra weight to like, um, uh, you know, taking care of friends and family. Yeah, um, yeah, that's and that's going to be like a clear kind of difference. Yeah, yeah, because there might be some second level utility principle whereby it is good to have those preferences for overall societal well being, but that's kind of weak. I think we would want something a little bit stronger than that for like. Yeah, I mean, you could say that. Well, you should really look after your friends and family because you'll you know burn out over the longer run. Um, 
in terms of your attempts to do good and so on. But they started to have the feel of kind of apologia rather than um, yeah. genuine just. Yeah, that I think the friends and family one might be a good... I mean, you might be able to mount some sort of argument to the effect that the, the world is better if everyone in the world has, like, two or three people who really love them in a way that they couldn't love everyone mm-hmm. in the world. But mm. again, that's still comparatively weak compared to, like... There's all these things about, like, you know, your wife and the guy who's going to cure cancer are drowning in the river and you can save one. Yeah. Like, these, these horrible things philosophers make us think about. And I think we'd want to say, at the very least, that is a hard decision. And you'd, you'd never get to that being a hard decision through consequentialism alone. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, okay, well, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, yeah, anywhere you'd like people to follow you at? Um, at Will McCaskill on Twitter. Excellent. Thanks for your time, Will. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying episodes like these, the best thing you can do to support the show is by helping us build our audience. We've seen some really good growth in the number of our followers recently, If you could help us continue that, that would be amazing. So any shares, any forwards, tag friends who you think would be interested, that would be amazing. And a big thank you to everyone who's already done that. Next week's episode, as mentioned, is going to be an Ask Me Anything where I take audience questions. And I'm going to make that available both as an audio podcast like this and also as a video which I'll put on our YouTube channel. So if you want to see the video version, subscribe to us on YouTube. The links to that, as well as our Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, are all on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So go ahead and check that out. Subscribe to any or, you know, all of them, if you're so inclined. And yeah, thanks again for listening, and until next week.